You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we explore digital culture, media, technology, and memes, featuring critical and empowering conversations with experts at the forefront of our digital moment. My name is Josh Chapteling, and my co-host is Dr. Jamie Cohen. How did one of Broadway's newest shows become a cringeworthy TikTok trend that earned tens of millions of views? And what are the larger implications of this trend? On today's episode, it's my pleasure to welcome Rolling Stone internet culture reporter C.T. Jones to discuss how Bad Cinderella became the latest example of a production that drew the ire of people on TikTok and how the production's marketing team and audiences leaned into the ironic attention. How did the show's development and debut on London's West End hurt the Andrew Lloyd Webber production? What does cringe mean in the context of trends? And why does it so effectively drive discourse? How can we differentiate between genuine enthusiasm and ironic enthusiasm from fans on social media? Jones is one of the best reporters covering internet culture today, and it was my pleasure to speak to them for this conversation. Before we begin... We are less than two weeks away from our first festival of the year, the premiere of Memes, Myths, and Magic on Saturday, April 29th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time at Caveat in New York City. We're bringing together an incredible lineup of artists, ethicists, comedians, and journalists to explore how memes, myths, and magic are central to our lives. From live AI demos to talks from C.T. Jones, Abby Govindin, Kelsey Weekman, Moises Mendez II, Ryan Broderick, Jamie Cohen, and more, you won't want to miss our first show of the year. Now, here's this week's conversation with Rolling Stone internet culture reporter C.T. Jones. C.T. Jones, it is such a pleasure to have a conversation with you on the Digital Void podcast after months and months of collaborating with you at our live events. I'm really, really excited to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time. I was deeply inspired to reach out to you to have a conversation about a trend that I feel is reflective of a larger social media environmental issue. And you recently wrote... Even TikTok couldn't save Broadway's Bad Cinderella for Rolling Stone. So a ton of money and marketing went into a production to create a modern telling of a classic myth that ultimately falls short of its goal and ends up as a TikTok trend. But before we dive into this, can we first introduce the primary story of today's conversation? What is Bad Cinderella and why is it trending? Okay, I'm so, so glad you've asked me. So Bad Cinderella essentially is a musical developed um, and written with Andrew Lloyd Webber, the very, very genius Broadway legend. The only way I can describe it, I love making a pun of the title, but it's what if Cinderella was edgy, essentially. So it's set in a magical land. It's not really established. But it's what if Cinderella was edgy and all of a sudden rethinking how we see the fairy tale. So instead of it being what if she's this gorgeous, lovely person, it's a Cinderella who's unsure about her place in society and is therefore using her name to rebel. So it's an edgy retelling of a classic myth. And in October 2022, Bad Cinderella star Lenady Hanau was announced as Bad Cinderella. And at the show's press conference, she spray paints the word bad atop a Cinderella backdrop. Can you explain 
what happens here, and why TikTokers had such a visceral response to this. One comment I read included, why am I so embarrassed with almost 95,000 likes? So I think one of the things that you have to think about, TikTok latches on to specific images or videos that kind of either, you know, are funny, you know, laughable. And it's this idea specifically with the Bad Cinderella promo that there was cringe involved. So she walks up, she says, I'm not just your Cinderella, I'm your bad Cinderella and spray paints bad. I love this actress so much. I think she's great. And also it read like an Arrested Development skit. The music playing from speakers off, Andrew Lloyd Webber standing on the sidelines watching her slowly spray paint. The fact that you could tell that they did not practice this beforehand She's still shaking the can. She's running out of time. She's running out of space. It's like painting the word happy and happy birthday on a sign and failing miserably. All of it worked together to be such a funny moment for TikTok that people latched on. But I think some of the backstory that people might not know is that before Bad Cinderella came to Broadway, it was developed and run in the West End in London. And one of the big controversies was that it was created right before COVID-19 happened. And so they tried and failed to open the show several times and had to eventually close it due to financial reasons. It just wasn't selling. It was actually way better received in London. But at the closing night, Andrew Lloyd Webber did not attend. And it was alleged that a lot of the actors and actresses found out that Bad Cinderella on in London was closing through social media, which is a very horrible way to find out that a job you think you're going to have for months at a time is no longer there. And at the show, Andrew Lloyd Webber, he sends this letter instead of coming himself. And he refers to the show as a, quote, costly mistake, which is immediately met with booze. Could you imagine if the man who gave you a job was like, you guys suck. So he clarified his comments later and he said he, to be more specific, um, I want to not put words in his mouth. He said he was not referring to the actual production as a costly mistake and he felt like his words were misinterpreted. And what he was trying to refer to was the fact that the show lost money by trying to open too early and then getting shut down again because of COVID-19, you know, restrictions in London. He said, I am devastated to have been reported to have said that my beloved production of Cinderella was a costly mistake. Nothing could be further from the truth. And I'm very sorry if my words have been misunderstood. So essentially, you have an amalgamation of issues here. At first, you have a botched opening in London on the West End. Then you have the show coming to New York and comments that are taken out of context by Andrew Lloyd Webber. How do all of these three things inform what you refer to as cringe? And why is cringe such a special sauce for TikTok in particular? I think one of the interesting things is that without the London version of Bad Cinderella, I think the show equally would have been bad, but would have not become TikTokified. I think the reason it was cringe is because you have a bad backstory. So this is something that all of these TikTokers who have theater accounts or are talking about musicals or plays or Broadway now explain to their followers. 
a lot of influencers were invited to the event from the genius. It was a there was an invitation that said from like the genius that brought you Phantom. Um, and they also changed the name from just Cinderella to bad Cinderella and what appears to have been an effort to kind of not freak people out. In London, it was reported that people went to see Cinderella thinking that it was just normal. And then they were like, what's going on? And it all works together to create this kind of level of cringe because in the internet terms, it's like watching a train wreck. That's the like the best way I can describe it is standing, watching a train or a car crash and you can't do anything, but you can't look away. So it's almost the entire dynamic of a platform like TikTok, where you're hooked with small dopamine hits of watching someone or a larger production continue to either embarrass themselves or put themselves out there in slightly shameful or shameless situations. There's this moment that it's really a meme and people are imitating the spray paint moment outside of the theater. I think one of the big parts of cringe is that it can sometimes be couched in irony. Are people recreating the spray paint moment outside of the theater in an ironic way? Or are they doing it out of a genuine sense of love of the press conference? It's definitely irony. It's from what I could tell. I went twice and the people who were talking about it had already heard all of the stuff on TikTok. People came knowing all of the drama and it added to the sense of I want to see this train wreck for myself. Another thing I will say about TikTok is I think the reason Bad Cinderella got so big on the app is because of the way audios work and of course the algorithm. So you see the press conference and by itself, if it was just a YouTube video, you'd probably be like, well, that was a little bit awkward. I'm going to forget about that. But maybe you like it or you watch it again and you comment. And then your third video after that, when you keep scrolling, is someone using the audio. And then you get to the sixth video and then the eighth video. And before you know it, Two weeks later, you're on a deep dive and now you're desperate for more information about Bad Cinderella. You want to know about the costumes. You want to know what people are saying. And it kind of all feeds into this like constant information loop that we have going on. But it's also really interesting because it keeps people on the app. And the same thing that keeps people scrolling on TikTok is the same thing that blows musicals like Bad Cinderella or even Water Talk completely out of proportion. So how would you differentiate between a genuine enthusiasm and engagement for an intellectual property like Stranger Things, which I know you've done a lot of research and writing about, and a Broadway production like Bad Cinderella, where users and people are actively creating content, they are organically driving discussion on social media platforms. One is kind of couched in irony, one is couched in genuine enthusiasm, but ultimately the results appear similar. Yeah, I think the difference is what kind of content people are making. For instance, a really good way to determine whether or not um, a show or a movie is well-received, not critically acclaimed, like not if a show is good, but if people enjoy it enough, is content like cosplay. So Stranger Things is a very good example. You'll see people taking clips from Stranger Things or moments and cosplaying them or repeating them. They talk about people they find attractive. It's this engagement that it's meant to connect with other people who feel the same way. Whereas if you look at the content from Bad Cinderella, it's not like meaningful. A lot of the times the engagement is, I am hearing about this 
here's what I think. So I would split it in two different things. There were people who got in on the joke because it was funny. And I will give the bad Cinderella marketing team credit for not being upset. I feel like it would be very easy to be, oh, people are making fun of me. But they kind of saw that it was in good fun and kind of kept the bit going. There's even um, a bad Cinderella video on their official TikTok where they make other cast members recreate the little leg that she does when she um, spray paints the board. But I think the difference that you'll find is what con what content people make about it. It's why you'll see people make here is the backstory behind Bad Cinderella. Whereas people make Stranger Things content about what they want to see next in next season or what characters they think are gay or they will scour thrift racks to try to find the best costumes. And I think it all comes down to when people are genuinely enjoying a show, they want to stay in that world. And when people are not enjoying a show where they don't like it, like Bad Cinderella, they think it shouldn't exist. They want to specify its place in our real world. That's so interesting. So by specifying its place in our real world, they're trying to find where this intellectual property situates in its own environment. It The cringe becomes like an awkward, amorphous object that people are kind of bouncing around. So why can't producers differentiate between organic and meaningful enthusiasm for commercial IP and meme trends like Gentle Minions that really took the uh, Gen Z audience by storm last summer when people were dressing up in suits and going to theaters and spreading a lot of memes about it versus ironic meme creation like Morbius and, and Morbin Time and the Summer of Morbius and now Bad Cinderella. We continue to see these two opposites. I think it's because it doesn't matter to their bottom line. When we talk about content like this, especially stuff that drives legitimate sales, people don't distinguish because it doesn't matter as long as they're making money. For instance, I think in an early draft of my review, I noted the fact that while I thought Bad Cinderella was not a good piece of work, I could imagine that the controversy around it would be enough to drive viewers. I mean, you see the same thing when you think about the movie Don't Worry, Darling. The Olivia Wilde directed Nightmare Storm that turned into Flor Does Florence Pugh love Harry Styles? Is Harry Styles going to get punched out by Jason Sudeikis? It, all of these things, even Spitgate, did Harry Styles spit on Chris Pine? It worked and it turned into legitimate viewership, legitimate tickets. And people don't really tell the difference because all they're seeing is numbers. So they're saying, oh, the teens are really into minions. Good for us. Or people love Morbin Time. We should put it in theaters again. And then they're like, oh, people didn't love our movie. I now understand what's happening. Right. So there's like a learning curve associated with what is ironic and cringe and translatable into real life results and what is almost post ironic and being used as highly referential meme material that is ultimately indicating uh, almost a sense of nihilism, meaninglessness. And I also think there's a lot to do with where um, things go viral on. For instance, part of the TikTok trend when you saw with the Minions, the joke was that you had to do it at the theater, right? You had to buy the ticket and go to the movie. You had to dress up and then 
mob in front of the screen. Whereas the Morbius memes, they were on Twitter. Like Twitter historically does not drive ticket sales the same way. Yeah, no, Twitter is probably the least effective platform to do any sort of ticket sales. (laughs) Absolutely. So someone who saw the Morbius memes was probably flagged about it. Someone, Someone got told by an intern and they didn't let the intern finish. Because if they had, the intern would have said, it's because people hate the movie. Please don't re-release it. Basically leads right into my next question, which is, how can people avoid doing this kind of thing where you end up in this ironic cringe marketing cycle where and and what voices are missing from this conversation? Because it feels like on the outside that all of this is really obvious to people like you and researchers and writers who can really quickly listen to an intern who is saying that maybe you have to have a better understanding of this and understand that what's happening online is some is is basically a, a grenade that you don't want to walk into. I think what it comes down to is a deepening understanding of how of what role the internet plays in our lives and in marketing. There's this common misconception, you know, when you see a brand on Twitter make a meme reference or post something, someone, you know, the next response is immediately they're going to fire the intern who tweeted this. Social media accounts and TikTok pages are not run by a 19-year-old who can't afford their rent. They're run by 36-year-old people who have probably master's degrees. And before they posted it, they most likely had to make a presentation about why they were going to post, what they were going to post, and what the goal was. And I think when you think about social media and internet culture and reporting and social media and all of it into this gross, weird amalgamation. It's all focused on engagement. And I think sometimes what people miss is that there needs to be like a genuine scholarship behind it. It's not just enough to say, and I think because of how algorithms and engagement work, it's very easy to write an article that's like, here is what the teens are talking about. Here is a TikTok trend. But something that I love doing in my reporting, especially, is not just saying why something exists or that something does exist, but why it matters. And I think that's a lot of like what marketers tend to miss. The larger cultural and political and social context for why something exists is really important. And I think this is a really good time to pivot into some of the nuances of Bat Cinderella, whereby there's... The surface issue, which was like the cringe marketing campaign that launched the show and some of the drama with Andrew Lloyd Webber's comments being taken out of context than the TikTok algorithmic meme cycle. But then it's the show itself, which I know you've seen twice and you said is not necessarily the best production, but there is a part of your piece that really stood out to me that I couldn't help but grow to associate with why this show is also receiving some pushback. And again, it's nothing against the cast, which works really, really hard and is super talented. But how does the show reinforce a lot of the longstanding traditions it's hoping to push back against? That's actually a great question, because I think the goal of Bad Cinderella seems to be we wanted to make a Cinderella that isn't about modern beauty standards. For instance, there are a lot of references to the fact that the town is made up of plastic people. The fairy godmother is um, a plastic surgeon, and she has this very dramatic song about Cinderella's way to beauty having to be like 
plucked and sewn. And there's even a line about if we have time, we'll remove one of your ribs. And it's this very nebulous, dark kind of song. And it's very clearly meant to be a critique on, you know, the Cinderella of a past where she turns from this, you know, gross cinder girl to one in a beautiful dress that only lasts until midnight. But the show, to pardon my language, it fucks itself because it doesn't actually develop Cinderella as a character, which makes it extremely frustrating to have a show that is supposed to be about empowerment. And then they do the most basic thing by not giving their character good enough want. Who is supposed to feel empowered by this? If the marketing is so targeted toward and and driven by Generation Z, did you get the impression that this was meant for a younger audience or a more broad audience? This is going to be interesting. And my friends and I have different debates on this. I think that it was meant for a broad audience. I think the show was developed as a how do we keep Lloyd Webber's name in Broadway? How do we keep his streak running? And I think once they realized that Gen Z was invested, they tried their best to market it. For instance, there's a line where Cinderella is getting roasted by her stepsisters and they say it's giving peasant and they call her a pick me girl, which is a line that is often used on TikTok. So I can see instances where they're they're trying to draw Gen Z in. I don't know if it works well enough. Like even when... I went to see it. Broadway is notoriously known for obviously having an older crowd because those are the people who can afford tickets that are a hundred plus dollars. But it definitely, they want younger people to see it. I'm thinking about how there feels like a specific type of pandering that was reflective of the increase in popularity of meta trends and meta nature in general. Meta humor, self-referential humor became popular more than a decade ago at this point, the type of humor typified by shows like Family Guy. And we began to see it really reflected in Broadway culture. The earliest I can remember this specific cycle beginning was probably Hamilton, where a pause was built into the moment in the show where Lin-Manuel Miranda's character and David Diggs's character high five each other after they say immigrants, we get the job done immediately after Donald Trump announced he was running for president and made incredibly racist and xenophobic marks in 2015. And it felt like at that moment, there was a shift where Broadway began to try to create these viral digestible moments that people were excited by to begin to see the shows. But in the broad sense that those moments come to excite folks, do we see the undermining of the rest of the production in the process of attempting to capitalize on a few moments that are made for a quick dopamine hit? Mm. I think what's interesting is when people see a Broadway show in its final product, what they aren't seeing is the years that it most likely spent in production and pre-production and probably at a theater workshop and with a different original cast. And Hamilton's actually a very good example because the show was worked through so many times that it kind of became this amorphous thing. And It's really interesting because when you talk about self-referential moments, I think Broadway is one of the genres in which this works best because you have an audience that's in its place. It's not like a movie where you're sitting down and you're thinking about other things. You came to a theater. You know what you're watching. You probably paid more than you should have for it. 
And it can work really well without undermining the rest of the performance because the best shows kind of think about humor and romance or anything that they're trying to do and make sure their audience, they remind, you know, that their audience. That's why there you know, like, are a lot of musicals where there are callbacks or the idea of playing to the back of the house. Broadway and, you know, plays and musicals are very specific to this. When we talk about theater, it's okay to be that kind of self-referential. I think where it gets to be a problem is when you can tell that the addition has little to do with the product itself and more to do with having a moment. For instance, when you think about Hamilton and immigrants, we get the job done. Yes, it's definitely referential to the fact that we were in a very weird time with the Trump presidency, but it also makes sense in the larger context of the show. Because Hamilton was a reimagining of the founding fathers if they were brown, it adds to the idea of reclaiming a narrative. Whereas in Bad Cinderella, a stepsister calling Cinderella a pick-me-girl or saying it's giving peasant or having jokes about plastic surgery, they don't add to the narrative. Instead, they take away and all of a sudden you're reminded I'm not in whatever they call the town, Belleville. I'm sitting in my seat at this theater. I don't want to be here. Right. So in a way, it does the opposite of the Deadpool thing. It's pulling you from the immersive experience rather than inserting you or immersing you even further into it. Absolutely. And the more they do it, the more it becomes glaring. And it starts to become this thing where you're watching about Cinderella and you go, oh, there are bigger holes here than just this is a show that had a funny TikTok moment at the beginning. Right. And ultimately, that leads to the unfortunate point, which is that ultimately, what is your analysis of Bad Cinderella? It's not wonderful. I think the interest in Bad Cinderella on TikTok is like a case study of how people react to people in power going a little nuts. For instance, the reason why people are being so harsh to it is because Andrew Lloyd Webber got such a bad rap for the London production. That being said, it's still not a great show. Changing the name, adding some lines can't fix the fact that Cinderella doesn't have a lot of wants. The cast is their absolute best. Dancers, they're doing a wonderful job. But the story doesn't make any sense. And I think once you stop having fun, you will leave the theater and say, I'm not sure that that said what they wanted it to say. What did they want it to say? I think. They wanted Bad Cinderella to be a cutting commentary on beauty standards while still having a lot of comedy and love and wit. Instead, it's the same Cinderella repackaged with fewer conflicting interests, but also there's nothing stopping Cinderella and the prince from being together. It's a mismatch of ideas. It's a mismatch of clothes. Some of the worst costuming I've ever seen. And at the end, it just feels like a way to make money. And I think in the larger context of theater, what's get, what gets frustrating about things like Bad Cinderella is that as a theater giant, Andrew Lloyd Webber has been so influential. Like his shows have been genuinely good. He's had some flops, but you know, he's a genuinely talented person. And I think we're starting to see people get frustrated by the idea that you would spend so much money just to keep your own legacy going as opposed to to helping out other people. And you can tell that he's aware of this in the sense that there were so many people in the cast who made their Broadway debuts in what felt like an attempt to kind of gain some favor back. It's not enough for the show because it's not a good show. I think the cast does really well. I also think it's funny that on TikTok, 
a lot of the comments you will see after they talk about how bad bad Cinderella is, is the next comment is always, we don't cast Shamir. Because when people are critiquing bad Cinderella, they're not critiquing the people in it. They're critiquing the systems that made it. To the point that you said that they are critiquing the systems that made it, what would your vision be for improving the systems that made it, whether it be and specifically related to social media platforms? How can we better create a future for creators and people who are working to be seen in meaningful ways? That is a very big question with a lot of answers. And I think for social media, creating a future for people who want to be seen like already exists. Like the fact that we have TikTok and Instagram and Twitter and Reddit, it allows people to kind of get their voices, their ideas out there. It connects groups. For theater, I think it's always going to come back to like money. Broadway and theater, theater as an industry, it does not pay people well. And so it is very hard to keep voices in theater. For instance, my partner is um, a stage manager. And one of the things I think about all of the time is every time you see a production, what you don't see is how little people are paid for this six to eight weeks that they're doing it. Or if you see something off Broadway or a short play, Broadway and theater has priced people out of the industry. So the shows you do see are always going, you know, they look a little white. And so if we, we want to imagine a future where theater is as inclusive as possible, it's always going to start with what people are making at the bottom. The bottom up approach is certainly the way to go because it very much feels like we're at this weird moment where everything is an adaptation of a successful intellectual property or by an established producer director like Andrew Lloyd Webber. And eventually you lose the point of theater which is supposed to tell meaningful, immersive experiences, as you said, to the back of the room, right? And eventually the feedback loop becomes recursive. Absolutely. And I think it becomes more frustrating because every year there is a show that breaks through. I'm thinking of A Strange Loop, Town, these shows that were so carefully workshopped and thought out and say a lot about art and who we are and what we need to do. The stories are well done. And every time you see one, what's frustrating is that every time I saw Town in A Strange Loop, all I could think of were the shows that I will never get to see because they never got that far. They didn't get the funding or someone was priced out of the industry or someone said, I'd love to write what I think could be the opus of my life, but I can choose that or I can choose paying my rent. It's unbelievable. And I'm very sad because I wanted to see A Strange Loop before it closed. But alas, it had way too short of a run. CT, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. I learned a tremendous amount. And I really look forward to seeing you and Moises present at Memes, Myths, and Magic later this month, April 29th at Caveat. We are very excited. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks again to C.T. Jones for taking time to join me on the Digital Void podcast. You can learn more about Jones by checking out the show notes for this week's episode and see them live at Memes, Myths, and Magic on April 29th. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll be back next week.